Welcome to the Refined Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Kat Harris, and I'm just so glad you're here. This podcast is designed to dig below the surface. We're going to talk about everything from life to love and pretty much everything in between. So go ahead and leave that Superman cape of having it all together at the door because life is freaking messy. Don't I know it. Now, not only are we going to be real, we're going to have some fun too, because Lord knows I will find any excuse to bring up Beyonce or the latest episode of The Bachelorette. So if you're a new friend, welcome. Make sure you're subscribed to the Refined Collective podcast on iTunes. And if you're an old friend, welcome back. And would you do me a quick favor? Hop on over to iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and written review. I would be so grateful. Finally, if something stands out to you in this episode, go on and slide into my DMs on Instagram. I love hearing from you. It's at The Refined Woman. Now let's go ahead and get to it. Welcome to the Refined Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Kat Harris, and a special shout out and thank you to Newsstand Studio here at Rock Center in New York City for giving me an incredible space to record. I am incredibly grateful for the Rock Center team. Thank you. Thank you. This week, we are taking a break from the That's What He Said series. If you don't know what that is, I interviewed eight different men all over the United States, single, married, somewhere in between, children, no children, pretty much all over the board. And I asked them each the top 15 dating and relationship questions that you sent me. And last week we had Jeff Johnson. He talked about the idea of going on a break from the person you're dating. He talked about how to approach the topic of pornography in your relationships. Just so many good things. And really his main his main point was how to create a culture of honor in dating. How do we honor each other? So if you haven't checked that out, go ahead, listen to this first because it's going to be awesome. And then go ahead, check out the That's What He Said series. We're taking a break this week because it has been on my heart to share resources and stories to support you in the upcoming election next week, November 3rd. Hopefully you are registered. Hopefully you are able to vote and plan for that. And in this space this week, I really want to ask the hard questions and then give you the space to ask those hard questions and wrestle with them and pray and seek discernment. And some of the questions I've been asking myself in this season is, how does my faith impact how I vote? What does it really mean to be pro-life? What does it mean to be a single-issue voter? What even is a single-issue voter? And how can I have a robust and holistic view of a candidate without getting sucked into propaganda and the emotion of it all? Because holy cow, if there's anything 2020 has been, and it has been a lot of things, it's been a polarizing, emotional, just hard, hard year. Like Tammy Taylor from Friday Night Lights says, it's a hard, hard thing. I wanted to share first before I introduce our guest about my experience that I had in 2008. So in 2008, when the election was coming up, even though I really wanted to vote for Obama, I didn't. And that was because I thought as a Christian, it was my duty and my moral obligation, really, my obligation to my faith, to my values to vote pro-life. 
It felt like there was really no ethical way I could ever support a presidential candidate that didn't believe in the quote-unquote sanctity of life. Even still, I stayed up late that night and I wept when Obama was elected, not because I was sad, but because I was relieved. And in that, I also felt conflicted. It wasn't until years later, after leaving um, the South and Southern evangelical culture, that it ever occurred to me that I could love Jesus and not be a single-issue voter. But we'll get to that later. My heart in having this podcast episode today is to have an honest conversation about abortion, pro-life, pro-birth, and all those things in between. So this week, you're going to hear from two incredible women. We're having two episodes back-to-back. This one's releasing today, Monday. The next one will release Wednesday. Today, we have author, speaker, and repeat the Refined Collective guest, Ashley Abercrombie. And then later this week, we'll have CEO of the Center for Public Justice, Stephanie Summers. A little bit more about Ashley. Ashley, again, she's a speaker, author of Rise of the Truth Teller, and her second book is coming out, is it 2021? Yes, in August of 2021. August 2021, Love is the Resistance. And recently, so Ashley is a really good friend of mine. Recently on her podcast called Why Though, she hosts that with Tiffany Bloom, also a Refined Collective guest. They had an episode called Why Pro-Birth is Not Enough, Though, and it was freaking awesome. I think I texted <laughs> Ashley mid-podcast and said, can I copy-paste this episode and we put it on mine? <laughs> will you please, even though you're like 37 weeks pregnant, will you please drop everything and come on my podcast this week? And you obliged. And so thank you, Ashley, for, for joining me today. Oh, I'm so honored to be here, Kat. I love you. I'm a huge fan of the podcast, of your refined collective community, and you. I just love you so much. Aww, I love <laughs> you. And it's so fun, too. I know we talked about this before we recorded, but you and I definitely have a voice memo relationship. Yes, we do. And I love it so much. <laughs> love and it. Guys, we'll send like seven to 10 minute voice memo. So it's not just yeah. like, hey, here's 30 second clip. It's right. like, no, here's a seven minute with all my thoughts. <laughs> I love it. And how many times have we both been voice memoing each other? And it's this super intense seven minute long voice mm-hmm. memo. And then freaking someone calls. Right. Like, and the whole thing gets deleted. Whole, I'm like, yeah. Apple, be better. Like, Literally why? do better. Can't you see I'm working on this phone? Like, what don't let heck? people call me right now. Seriously. <laughs> or God forbid your thumb moves like a, you yes. know, like a millimeter. And then the whole yes. thing deletes. I'm like, Apple, I feel like you're smarter than this. I feel like there's an agenda here and I don't understand I what it is. I agree. <laughs> what is the voice memo agenda with Apple? I don't even know. Keep us on the phone longer, I guess. Well, probably. They're like, we want you to use your minutes. According to social dilemma. Right? Oh, man. That's a whole other podcast episode, the social dilemma. Oh, girl. Um, Well, I am so grateful to be chatting with you today. I think, first and foremost, I would just love to just hear your heart for women. And, you know, abortion is... It's a hot topic. It's yeah, wherever it you land on the spectrum. It I feel like almost this guttural response comes mm-hmm. out of people. And 
I, I think I texted you the other day. I lost like a thousand followers in oh. like one day because I made a video about politics and people were like, stay in your lane and why are you talking about this? And so I think I just want people to know like my heart is just to love the women well in my community and not add more shame to a conversation that's so shame inducing. So I just love to hear your heart for women and abortion and all that stuff. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that you're having this conversation. And I really do think we need more brave spaces where we are able to speak and to talk about this. Because the reality is, you know, one in four women in America have experienced abortion, which by default also means that one in four men have experienced abortion. And, you know, that that is the topic that's not often covered. You know, men are very absent from this conversation, which we can get into later. Yeah. Um, but the stigma and the shame of abortion lays heavy on women alone. And I think that in our rhetoric as Christians, sometimes we can produce a shame culture and we can produce a culture where women and where people are afraid to speak about this issue. And it's important. And I am a person who is a Christian. I am pro-life and I have had an abortion. Mm. So when I was 21 years old, well, right before I turned 21 and I was about to move from my home state of North Carolina out to Los Angeles, California, and found out I was pregnant just a week before moving. And it was one of the most difficult decisions of my life. And at the time I was in poverty, Mm -hmm. I was, I had just quit school to hopefully start school in Los Angeles. I was really hoping for better opportunities. I was in a very dysfunctional relationship um, at the time and just had addictions galore. I mean, Mm. from drugs to abuse of alcohol, um, eating disorders. I mean, it was a really terrible time in my life. And I remember calling the abortion clinic, making an appointment for the next morning and just going into fix-it mode, really, and not really having anyone I could reach out to or talk to or invite into that decision Mm. and just feeling very alone in the decision. And unsure how I could even, you know, bring a life into the world. I had always wanted to be a mother. I had always wanted babies. Um, and I think that that made the shame even more mm. so. Now, I didn't grow up in the evangelical camp, so I was not raised you know, to only think about abortion when it comes to my politics. I was not raised, you know, we didn't really even talk about abortion. I can't ever actually remember it coming up my entire childhood or teenage years or early adult life. It just wasn't something that we ever really talked about. Mm. So I was not kind of indoctrinated in the evangelical camp, as I know many, many people are. And indoctrinated, I recognize is a very strong word, but I think it's the right word (laughs) because it, it, is the reason that Christians so desperately mesh their political partisanship with their faith. And I didn't grow up with people telling me how to vote or in a faith community where people told me how to vote or how to think. You know, that was, it's been so strange for me. I didn't realize this was true for Christianity until I was in my 30s. Mm. I didn't realize that there was a whole camp and a whole sect of Christianity that told people how to think and how to vote. And that if, you know, whichever party is the one who's against abortion, that's the one you should vote for. Like, I just wasn't raised that way. So I've always thought about political issues more holistically Mm. and have not been a single issue voter. But with abortion, you know, going through my own healing and recovery, being able to name that, going through grief counseling, um, spending some time really growing and healing from that experience. And then also spending the last 10 years working with women who have had abortions or who have had a DNC because maybe a baby has passed away in their wombs desperately awful situations for women, but they classify that as an abortion as well. And so I've led recovery groups for women um, to heal from those things and to receive forgiveness and to 
you know, understand what it means to be restored and to forgive themselves should they need that, which most, most women I know have had an abortion. That's probably the number one thing they need is freedom to forgive themselves and to move forward and to talk about it openly and honestly with the people that they love and care about. Mm. So I've just said a very long winded response to your, (laughs) to your question. But I think that's the point of this is that it's so much more nuanced than we feel comfortable with it being. Mm. Yeah. And I think the older I get, and it, I, I still feel really young <laughs> at 35, yeah. but it's yes. funny. I was talking with a, a, a relationship coach on my podcast yesterday we recorded, and he was like, you know, like you don't understand what it's like to be 20 anymore, right? <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about? Are you saying I'm old? He was like, yeah, kind of. Like You don't really know. Like, rude. Rude. I was like, um, hello, I'm 30, flirty, and thriving. Who are you? Um, but even I think in that, just what I would, what I, what was humbling about that was just a reminder that mm-hmm. I am in my own experience and yes. I actually don't know what it's like to be another person. And yes. really, the only way I can sort of start grasping what it is like to be another human is to get to know, is to ask questions, is to listen. Yes. And so, in that, I'm just so curious your thoughts on even your own experience, the women that you have walked with for years and years and years now who have gotten abortions. What are the reasons people get abortions? I ask that because mm-hmm. I think there's such a stigma there of, is. well, why weren't you just using protection? And if you're going to be having sex, then you should, you know, if you're grown up enough to have sex, then you need, you're grown up enough to have a baby. Mm. And I, I mean, I used to think that, and I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. I've said that. <laughs> Those are yeah. my own words. Thanks for that honesty. And yeah. And so I just want to hear from your experience and the experience of women. Can you tease this out for us a little bit? Mm-hmm. And I think humanize the reasons a little bit more. Yes. And as I do this, I want to be thoughtful of your listener too, because I recognize that all of us are all over the map yeah. and it can feel like a very polarizing divisive issue. Mm-hmm. So thank you for leaning in and listening as, as a community, as a tribe to really, you know, further understand this issue. And even if it makes it, un- you feel uncomfortable, I'm grateful that you'd be listening. Um, I think that part of this is, you know, we do make a caricature out of abortion and many social issues, whether it's race or it's gender or it's, you know, we use words like white trash, Mm -hmm. you know, like we just, as a society, we tend to caricature things like poverty or race or gender or abortion, like social issues become things that we can broad stroke. And we make, we demonize a character in our mind. And we assume that everybody who's had this issue looks like this, talks like this, lives like this. Mm -hmm. So I think that's very true for abortion. And what people don't understand that the number one common denominator in abortions is poverty. Poverty. Mm. And so um, women not being able to have, you know, the capacity to care for themselves or for a child. And if you think about, let's say a person gets pregnant and, and they are working at a grocery store or they are a Starbucks barista or they are a janitor at a hospital or they have a job that's paying them minimum wage of $7.25 an hour, maybe a little higher than that. And there is no maternity leave. There is no paid leave. There is no opportunity for them to be off after baby. And childcare expenses are astronomical. I mean, just even finding a daycare on a minimum wage, it just wouldn't happen. My Mm -hmm. husband and I do not have minimum wage jobs. 
and there's no way we could even do childcare. Mm. <laughs> so how much more so someone who is working to make ends meet? And I didn't go above the poverty line personally until I was 27 years old. And so I think that I really understand what it's like to not have the means or capacity to do things. And even the government paid leave that many states have begun to offer is, is insufficient to give somebody a full maternity leave, much less even a month of maternity leave. And people have to work. So poverty is the number one issue. And then I also think that people don't realize that 25% of the abortions that are had in America are had by married women. Mm -hmm. And then there's also other factors such as domestic violence where women are considering how do I bring Mm -hmm. a child into this home with a a very abusive partner, um, with someone who has the capacity, who is hurting me, who has Mm -hmm. the capacity to hurt someone as like an infant. And I've seen that over and over again in the abortion recovery groups that I've led. And I have yet to meet someone, and this is a bold statement, and maybe they do exist, but I have yet to meet someone in all my years of working with women who made this decision selfishly or recklessly. Mm-hmm. Um, someone who was just like, I, I don't have time for a baby, or this is not, you know, there, that's never been the rhetoric. It's been an unbearable, impossible decision. And I think that the recovery process is long and hard, and most of us are, are cognitively aware of that. Mm-hmm. But I think sometimes we still judge people. And what makes me sad about that, if poverty is the number one issue, is that sometimes we are sitting in our high horse of like, well, I have family to help me care for a baby. I have a partner with a great job. I have a good job myself that would provide maternity leave. I own a home. I have capacity to get daycare. You know, like all the things that we might have. And then from that high horse, we begin to judge women who make these decisions. And I think that that is where we need to really come together and be more honoring and understanding of what people are really dealing with and also begin to diversify our life so we can actually understand, you know, if we have a certain level of economics, what does it mean for somebody to not have that? We have a certain level of social status and belonging and community and family. What does it mean? What do the same policies mean for someone who doesn't have any of that? And I think that's really important to talk about. So abortion doesn't have a specific face. Mm. It doesn't have a specific color. It doesn't have a specific demographic. And I'm also not saying that women who are not in poverty don't have abortions because they do. You know, women who have the means but maybe 40 or don't want to have another child and they make this decision. So I think that, you know, we need to stop acting like it looks a certain way and right. stop peddling that rhetoric. Right. And even when you're saying that, what what comes to mind for me is this, like, this moral superiority mm-hmm. of yes. I am— even if the other stuff is true, even if I am not in poverty and this other person is in poverty, even with all of that taken into consideration, um, just coming from the stance of no matter what, I would never do that. Right. Yeah. You know, because I am so much better than yes. that. And yeah. you and I um, have talked about briefly— um, John Piper just released an Mm. article yesterday, which is sort of taking the evangelical world a little bit by storm. Hold on. Let me just pull up the name of it for people, and we'll link it in the show notes. It is called Policies, Persons, and Paths to Ruin. And, you know, Piper— isn't like let's let's I love Desiring God. I'll say that. That book, Desiring True. God, really, you know, God is most glorified and we are most satisfied in him. However, yeah. some of his theology has been painful for me as a woman. However, yes. this is kind of his first real public stance on politics. And he said something interesting in his 
article yesterday. He says, this is a long overdue article attempting to explain why I remain baffled that so many Christians consider the sins of unrepentant sexual immorality, unrepentant boastfulness, unrepentant vulgarity, unrepentant factitiousness, and the like to be only toxic for our nation while policies that endorse baby killing, sex switching, freedom limiting, and socialistic overreach are viewed as deadly. <laughs> the reason I so he put the words in Greek, he says, is to is a this is a graphic reminder that these sins mentioned in the New Testament, to be more specific, they are sins that destroy people. They are not just deadly. They are deadly forever. They lead to right. destruction. And um that's I had to read that a few times to understand what he was saying, but I think in that what I receive that is applicable here is I feel I can feel better than another person because my decisions aren't as bad as her decisions. Right. <laughs> Isn't that so true for how yeah. Christians, many Christians move through their faith mm-hmm. and um, there is a, a lack of compassion and a lack of understanding of brokenness and a, frankly, a re- reductionary view of the cross. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, you and I both have a, a deep love for the recovery community and mm-hmm. I've got 17 years sober. And because of that, I love the recovery community because we lead with story and we lead with brokenness because mm-hmm. it is hard to be so judgmental when you are connected to a story and yeah. when you have context for the reason someone makes their decisions. And it is also really hard to be judgmental when you recognize how broken you personally are. Like when I see the sins that I have committed, when I think about the things that I have done, when I look at the mistakes I have made and the, the sheer amount of failures in my life, it opens me up to be more understanding and to be more loving. Mm. And I think that that's really important for Christians. And again, I don't think that politics and Christianity should be enmeshed. I think Mm. Christianity in and of itself is a political faith. You know, Mm. Jesus is radical. It's crazy the things that he would do, (laughs) the the things he would say, the way he would live, but it doesn't have to be partisan. Like I don't have to use the Bible to back up everything I think politically. I don't have to use scripture in order to manipulate and control people to vote or to think a certain way. And I certainly wouldn't use the pulpit or the platform I've been given to proudly declare what God is for and what God is against. Oh, I think that is a very, very dangerous, prideful way to live. And to Piper's credit, it's it's one of the things I really appreciated about that article is that he was calling sins like pride and greed just as deadly as the other things that many evangelicals, you know, think are so deadly mm-hmm. and and lead them to be single issue voters, for example. Mm-hmm. And I appreciated that because it's true. And he didn't just address the individual. He talked about how it leads nations mm-hmm. <laughs> into ruin. And then at the end of it, he asked, you know, pastors have to really sit in your quiet time with God and ask him, what happens if all this falls apart? What happens if America is totally taken over by tyranny or completely taken over by fundamentalism? Like, what will you do? You know, and have you raised up the kind of disciples who can still live in that world? Because that is actually what we're supposed to be doing with our faith and not getting people to vote a certain way or legislating our morality onto a nation (laughs) that is made up of constituents and not just Christians. So I I appreciated, you know, Piper's stance and I appreciated his article, regardless of my theological disagreements with him. Right. But (laughs) just a a tiny question there is, but aren't we— trying to get people to think a different way? Like, aren't I using my platform to, you know, I'm not saying if you 
don't if you if you vote for Trump, you're the worst person ever. If right. you're a Christian, you have to vote for Biden. But right. I mean, I am being vocal about here's what I believe, and my faith mm-hmm. is my faith definitely is impacting that. And so yep. I agree with you. Like from the pulpit, you shouldn't be like, if you want to be a part of this community, you have to vote this way. And yet it feels like a tension because yes. yeah, Piper isn't saying he leaves the article and he doesn't say who he's voting for. That's I right. mean, it's a little, it's a little implicit, but, but he still doesn't say, and he still says, you know, yep. whoever you vote for, like, I will love you. And mm-hmm. I think that's been hard for me because part of me that. has been like, I do care who you vote for. And this does right. feel like a big deal for me. And, yeah. and I'm judging the pastor who is mm. making overt statements about who to vote for. But I also am a leader. You're a leader. We're yep. leaders. Yep. So what is that? What do you think about that tension? So I love this question. And I also, I imagine your listeners are like, yeah, that's right. Ask that because it mm-hmm. is really important to think about this. For me, I I don't mind if someone holds conservative values or um, liberal values, or they are somewhere in the independent centrist space, like to me, the values by which you believe society should be governed, it's okay to disagree about those things. What Mm -hmm. I am vehemently against in faith communities and in Christians is when we begin to assign our full faith and our full support with no critique and no critical thinking Mm -hmm. to a party or to a person or to a pundit. I think that that is the danger I want to spend my time warning people against. And so less telling people how to vote, because I know plenty of people who are conservatives, for example, and they value Republican Party values. And perhaps they've been steeped in it their whole life. They're probably always going to vote red. And they despise Trump because they see his rhetoric. They understand his danger. They see that he's not even a full conservative himself. And they get that. But they still are going to vote red. And then I see on the opposite side, where there are many um, progressives who are like, hey, I'm I'm lean more progressive, but here's what I want to critique in my party. I don't love that they want to legislate this and that on the extreme ends of this liberal spectrum. And Mm -hmm. I agree with it. It's like, I get get you on both sides. And so I think that that is a responsible citizen, and that is a responsible, informed voter who can Mm -hmm. say these, neither of these are Christian parties, neither of these are pro-life parties, and I'm going to do my best and allow my faith to inform my vote and to inform the way I think civic engagement should operate in America and what policies should be laid out, and I will allow my faith to inform that, but I will not allow a party to control me, and I will not reduce the cross or Jesus down to this is the way Christians need to think. Mm. And so that's what I'm against. And that's what I want people to understand. I want them to be informed. Like, if you really are anti-abortion, why are you that way? Is it something that you inherited from your faith community growing up? Is it something that your parents taught you? Or is it a value that you hold dear because you have researched the issue, because you Mm -hmm. understand women, because you get that men are a part of this, because you're pro-birth and pro-mother? Like how, and you're pro-birth for the whole life, that you understand that there needs to be access to education, access to healthcare, and you understand that you need paid maternity leave. And we need to be thinking about women through this process and that the child should be able to grow up in a healthy home. Like, are Mm -hmm. we thinking that way? Then to me, like, as a pro-life person, that's why I'm pro-life. <laughs> I'm yeah. pro-life from the beginning to the end. So are you informed about the things that you're against? Are you informed about the things that you're for? Mm-hmm. And that's what I want Christians to do is be thoughtful and not be stuck. Like if you fit neatly into a Republican party, a Democratic party, or an independent, virtuous 
whatever you think that space is, you know, are you, do you fit neatly? Because as believers, how can you? Um, We don't fit neatly into any of these sides. We are Christians. We Mm. love the Lord Jesus, and He's radical, and He's not pushing a political agenda. Wow, that's Ash. That's so good. And what I'm hearing you say is, it's less about a leader saying you need to vote this way, you need to vote that way, but it's how do we equip people to use their God-given brains. Yes, (laughs) correct. And and I think the end of the article, the end of the, who knew this was going to be a John Piper TED Talk? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Never Um, saw this coming on. Man, me either. Wow. Um, (laughs) Thank you, John Piper. (laughs) You know how they say it takes a village to raise kids? Well, the Refined Collective is kind of my kid. It's my little baby. And it takes a village, and I officially want to invite you to be a part of my village. There are a lot of hard costs each month from software and subscription services to my team who edit and produce episodes to licensing music and all the logistics for the Refined Collective. And I would love to invite you to join our Patreon community. Patreon is an incredible platform that helps listeners financially support their favorite podcasts. You can support TRC for as little as $5 a month. And we made a bunch of fun different tiers that are jam-packed with free goodies and VIP access to our newest content. And you'll be notified before anyone else about upcoming live events. I'll also be going to you first to find out what questions you want answered and what topics you want covered moving forward on the podcast. So in the midst of a wild year, I want to invite you to link arms with my team and sharing some of the load and helping make the Refined Collective the best it can possibly be. So if you want to learn more or sign up today, head on over to patreon.com slash the Refined Collective. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Refined Collective. So at the end of his article, when he kind of calls out pastors of yes. how are you leading your people? Are, yes. when, when the going gets tough, when the shit yep. hits the fan, yes. are you, like, have you developed and mentored and invested into the whole person of your of your of your body of believers yes. however you want to call that or is it just have you just given them sound bites right because whatever on. the sound bite is whether it's you know I talk so much about sexuality if all I know about sex is well to be a good Christian I don't have sex if I right. don't know my why, if I don't, if I'm not internally motivated, if I haven't done the work, then yep. guess what? A gust of wind comes by and all that crumbles to the ground. That's it. And so it's, yep. it just sounds like the goal here isn't to convince someone to vote for Trump or not vote for Trump, to be Republican or Democrat or whatever. It's mm-hmm. let's be mindful. Yes. Let's really like, I want to be the type of person that is like, oh, like, well, you, like you just said, pro mother. I'm like, I've never heard what that. I've never heard that term. So yeah. I want to hear about that. I want to have a posture of learning. Um, yeah. So in that, you talked about. I don't. I'm like, oh, pro mother. What is that? Can yeah. you unpack what do you mean when you say things like pro birth, pro mother, and mm-hmm. are those? Does that mean something different from being pro life? Yes. So I love. Um, you know, thinking about being pro-mother is a really powerful thing because very often it's easy for us to divorce the mother who is carrying the baby from the baby. 
And I really don't think that that is a wise way to look at this issue because until we are able to help women have birth experiences that are good and help women have the capacity to recover after a birth and to have at least, I mean, at bare minimum, four weeks to recover. And even that is not even close to an, I'm I'm on my third baby. Trust me when I tell you, you don't even get your brain back until six weeks. I mean, Mm -hmm. mothers need minimum that amount, but because women have to go back to work, especially if they're working minimum wage jobs, and then they're just trusting their one month old baby to a daycare or to a a caretaker or to a family member. I mean, this is, these are massive decisions that women are making. Mm -hmm. And I find very often in the evangelical community, that's not even part of the conversation, which is shocking to me because I'm like, Mm -hmm. women, don't you, if you had 12 weeks maternity leave, wouldn't you want that for every woman in America? And by the way, we are like Jurassic Park years away from the rest of the, <laughs> the, the world that gives women and mothers a year off that offers paternity leave. So mm-hmm. dad, dad can also be home with the baby. My husband, you know, has only in our first baby, he got one week off and our wow. second baby, he got three days you know, to be home with us. As if men don't need to be a part of raising Come their on. children. Of course. And as if they're not also exhausted and being up all night long and taking care of the other children while mom's recovering. I mean, so I just think this pro-mother conversation is saying, we think mom should have great access to healthcare. We do not think her birth experience should be traumatic. And I have, I have had one great one and one very traumatic one. Mm. And it is, it is awful to recover from. Mm. (laughs) I think, you know, knowing that we want mom to also be able to have access to different opportunities. So maybe she was not able to go to college. Like, are there programs where we could put her through a trade school where she's not going to have to be in the same position the rest of her whole life. Um, Access to childcare, access to education. You know, your education in America depends on what zip code you live in. And again, that's a broad stroke because in my small Southern town where I was raised, we only had one high school for the entire town. So I didn't have options, but it was a great school. And so I think thinking about like, okay, what does this mean for a mom to be able to put her children in school and feel secure about that Mm -hmm. while she goes to work. And so we're thinking about the whole life of a child and we're thinking about the whole life of a mother. And because a mom who is not stressed and who's not living at the end of her margin in every area is a better mother. Mm -hmm. And she will be able to raise a citizen, a a young man or a young woman who is raised in health and safety and security. And I'm not even talking about like radical stuff. I'm talking about just basic housing, good wages, basic education, like this kind of thing cultivates a healthy and safe society. And so when we divorce mom from the baby, I think that that makes it, it makes moms feel like, oh, you don't care about me. And you know what? It's obvious. I love what sister Joan Chittister, she's um, a nun, an author and a speaker. She's one of my favorite people. I just love her. And she said this, I do not believe that just because you're opposed to abortion, that that makes you pro-life. In fact, I think in many cases, your morality is deeply lacking if all you want is a child born, but not a child fed not a child educated, not a child housed. And why would I think that you don't? Because you don't want tax money to go there. That's not pro-life. That's pro-birth. We need a much broader conversation on what the morality of pro-life is. And so when we talk about pro-birth, same thing. It's like, yes, it's great to want a baby to be born. I mean, I share that with so many of you who are listening. I want that. I want every mother to not make Mm. this impossible choice and for her to be able to have her baby regardless of the circumstances. And maybe there's some caveats for things like rape and incest and, you know, young women, like there, there could be some caveats for me there. That might not be true for many of the listeners, but Mm. for me there is. Um, But this idea of pro-birth is not enough. Like that is not enough. We have to go further than that 
And we have to think um, broader about this conversation. And it matters that we think long-term and that we think about women who don't have access to the things that we might have access to. And that we think about, you know, how somebody's context and their family members and all of that. Like, this is so important. We cannot just be pro-birth people. We have to be pro-life. And it's who God is. It's who Jesus is. He's pro-life the whole freaking time. Right. (laughs) And also, Jesus always, 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 always supported and moved towards the disadvantaged in society and culture. And I was listening to the liturgist did a a podcast about, you know, faith and politics uh, recently. And one of the hosts said, you know, we don't really want to deal with an America that we're actually more Egypt than Israel. Come on. <laughs> we're Facts. the, we are, in America, we, we are, are the Pharaoh. people in power. <laughs> we are Pharaoh. Yeah. That's right. Yes. That's right. Like, yes. you know, yes, Jesus cares about, you know, every detail of all of our lives. Like God is active in our lives. However, yes. Jesus always made movement and restored dignity and offered acceptance and kindness and generosity and advocacy for the oppressed, for the person and culture. I mean, the woman caught in adultery Mm -hmm. who was thrown at the feet of Jesus by the religious and cultural elite. Yep. Culturally and religiously, she had the right to die as a woman because she was caught in adultery. Where was the man? No accountability for him because in that culture and that religious atmosphere, women didn't really have a voice. But then Jesus comes in and he kneels down and gets eye to eye with her and restores her dignity. Because you who who is without sin, throw the first stone. Yes. And so in that, I just see this repetition of fighting for the person who doesn't have a say in culture or who doesn't have the means and or the ends. And so what does that look like for me today in 2020 as a woman, as a white woman, I have privilege in our society and culture. How do I then look at and build a relationship with the woman in an unexpected pregnancy who doesn't have the means to support a child. What does that Mm -hmm. look like? Do I judge her and yell at her and throw shame her way to say, well, no matter what, I wouldn't have an abortion. I just don't think that that is what Jesus would respond to that woman. That's right. He wouldn't. And I think that's a really beautiful perspective. And, you know, there's something, it's a hill I want to die on, like literally when it comes to men and this issue. Mm -hmm. And you brought it up when you spoke about the women, uh, the woman who was caught in the act of adultery and the man being not present. And um, the way Jesus did that, like, I don't know what he was writing. No one does. I'm like, (laughs) so, right? I want to know. Me too. What did you write in the dirt? Yes, let us know. But I think, you know, who could, he could have been standing among them. Like, we don't know what Mm -hmm. the situation could have been. And so I just think about men when it comes to the issue of abortion. And that's when I go into like criminalization and policies and all these different things. And when we call, you know, women murderers and all this different stuff that we say, and, and many states, abortion remains in the penal code as a criminal 
thing, which means at some point down the line, whenever it's in the penal code underneath crime versus health code, um, then that could mean at some point women are criminalized. And if that is the case, you know, if if women begin to be fined for this issue or they begin to be put in jail, which I am very against, I do not think me as a 20 year old, nor any of the women I have ever been in recovery with would deserve to be put in prison for their choice. And if that was to happen, why is she there alone? And I don't think sometimes we interrogate the words we use and how powerful they are in society. And we need to be holding men accountable. And so that's one thing I really appreciate about Jesus is that, you know, the people that society let off the hook all the time, Jesus was um, holding accountable. Mm -hmm. And I think as a society in the pro-life conversation, for those who are really in the pro-life movement, that needs to be a bigger part of it. We need to be holding men accountable. And when we use things, I saw someone the other day post on Facebook and you hinted at this earlier too, Mm -hmm. Kat, but just talking about, well, women, you know, if they're they're old enough to have sex, they can have, they can use birth control. They can do this, that, or the other. Well, so can men. (laughs) We have a little thing called a condom that men hate wearing. (laughs) And I think it's super important for us to talk about the fact that, (laughs) okay, but if a man doesn't want to have a baby, put a condom on. Like there's a 99.5% chance that you will not have a baby if you wear one. And so it's not all on the female to be making every decision about a sexual encounter. And for so long, we have heaped all the responsibility, all the shame, all the stigma on women. Mm -hmm. When it comes to sex, when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to abortion, and and I am, I will die on that hill. (laughs) It is not a one-sided thing. And if we're going to brutally slaughter women in the media Mm -hmm. and on Facebook and everywhere else, then include men in the conversation. And it's sad, but when people do that, they get a bit more respectful. Interesting. (laughs) But that's the facts. Yeah. So I I would really appreciate if the pro-life conversation really included men. I think that would be important. Kat, you also mentioned privilege. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's important to talk about too, because, you know, we're not, God isn't mad that you have money or means Mm -hmm. and God isn't upset that you have a home or you have privilege and you have opportunities like, good, just do something great with it. You know, Mm -hmm. leverage your privilege to be helpful to society and to be understanding and compassionate and to adopt children if that's a possibility for you or to care for a single mother or cover grocery costs or, you know, get someone a car who's riding the bus two hours a day. Like, there are so many things you can do to make a difference in in being pro mother and being being pro child yeah. and pro family that would really be helpful to your passions and convictions. Like the things that I'm passionate about, I put my money behind. Yes, <laughs> I don't yes, just come on. say I'm passionate about it and post some posts on Instagram. Like mm-hmm. I am putting my money, my resources, yes. my time are going to the things I care about. Yes. So in 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 light of what you're sharing, I'm hearing these like threads of uh answers almost to another question. And the question, the question that's coming to my mind is, um, if abortion is a a big deal to the evangelical or to any person, let's just say for a person who perhaps abortion is a deal breaker for them or something that they feel really passionately about is voting pro-life the best way to decrease abortion rate. Mm-hmm. And and I think the the rhetoric that's been given through the I, I believe the Republican Party is mm-hmm. is that 
oh, essentially overturning Roe v. Wade is the key to reducing abortion rates. Mm-hmm. When in reality, <laughs> um, like uh, for the, it's a, I, I did a little research. I am by no, this is by no means exhaustive, but for the last 49 years, Republicans have owned the majority in the Supreme Court, yet there's been no overturn. And right. in 1992, there was even an, there was even an eight to one Republican to Democrat Supreme Court. And when they were given the chance to turn down abortion, they didn't. So, and also the Roe v. Wade decision didn't legalize abortion. Um, In 1776, abortion was legal everywhere. In the 1930s, doctors reported 800,000 legal abortions, which which is actually similar to the numbers of that today. Um, So is it true that if I vote pro-life, that that's actually going to give me the results of the values. And and if, if the value is that abortion, like I don't, I want less abortions. What's going to create less abortions? Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I really love this question. And I can share a couple of podcasts and articles that mm-hmm. would be really helpful for people in your community to understand, you know, kind of the history of evangelicals Mm. and abortion, because, you know, prior to the seventies, it was a Catholic issue. Mm. Um, and I deeply, I want to say I have a deep abiding love for the Catholics. I mean, I have had a Catholic nun as a mentor for a very long time. They are pro-life from womb to tomb and (laughs) I care about justice issues and I adore them. So it's a beautiful community. The pro-life movement for the most part is true and authentic. Mm. And in the seventies, when Brown versus board of education, came, then many evangelicals um, under the leadership of people like Jerry Fowler Sr. and a man named Francis Schaefer began to open schools that where they did not have to integrate. So the schools could be all white as long as they were Christian private. Now that got overturned in Wait, the court can system. can you pause? Francis yeah. Schaefer did that too? Yes. And now he's like, he's completely reformed. Okay, like he's like, had a full change of heart, right? Like he's the father of like conservative intellectual thought, right? Like wow. he's, yeah. And he, and he's had a major reformation. He doesn't believe any of this stuff anymore. So that's, he's a really great person to kind of connect to and follow mm-hmm. and see his journey. But they began to open up all these schools. All that got overturned, and they had to begin to integrate, even in the private schools. And many evangelicals were very upset about that. And they had elected Jimmy Carter, like evangelicals. He was a Democrat who taught Sunday school, and evangelicals got behind him, and he was able to be president of the United States. And then something switched. They realized that he didn't have the same policy. You know, he had a more radical, he believed in universal health care. He had a more progressive platform than they had initially imagined. They just liked the fact that he was Christian and taught Sunday school. (laughs) So then they began to get behind this Mm. issue of abortion because they realized that could move the masses. And then underneath Reagan, they put in like a a general surgeon who, you know, publicly on news stations was starting to go through the stages of birth and pregnancy. So people were just beginning to talk about abortion in a way that was not, not holistic and not helpful. And I will say that even when they settled on Roe v. Wade, you know, seven out of the nine justices who voted yes for Roe v. Wade, um, six of those seven were Chris, were appointed by Republican presidents. So they were on the more conservative end. And to your point, Kat, like it still has not been overturned. Mm-hmm. And part of that was because of the privacy issue. Um, you know, m- many people 
assume that it's because, you know, people just want us to have a society where, you know, having a baby is just a choice and you can get an abortion whenever you feel like Mm -hmm. it, even though no woman I know has ever made a decision like that. But still, it was privacy. It's like what happens between a female and her doctor is nobody else's business. And so that's initially why they settled as yeses for Roe v. Wade, because we value privacy and we value that the government cannot intervene in my private medical conversations with doctors. Mm -hmm. So there is this really long history Um, And again, I'll link to some stuff for Kat so that you guys will be able to read more about that if you're interested. But how do we make abortion unnecessary? That's a beautiful question that my co-host Tiffany asked. And would, if we vote a certain way, if Roe v. Wade gets overturned, would it stop abortions? Well, it wouldn't because we have history to show that there's back alley abortions and that people will do whatever it takes to, you know, not have a baby if they're committed to that. And we don't want that for women. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the same time, if we don't have any policies in place for all these babies, what happens when more babies go into our foster care system? What happens when more babies are unable to be taken care of? What happens when we have more babies dependent on, you know, structures and systems in society because the mother has no capacity to depend on people or family or community in her life? So again, that's being pro-birth. What does it look like to be pro-life? What does it look like to push whichever party we're for to advocate for policies and for healthcare and for education and for affordable housing to be able to be in our society in a way that would benefit families, would benefit women, would benefit children. Wow. And you know, the living wage in America has not gone up since 2007, $7.25 an hour, yet housing has increased by 50%. Wow. And the millennial generation, which is mine, by the way, I'm on the, I'm on the tail end of it, but, um, and then yours too, Kat, you know, but um, debt, ha- debt has gone up. Mm-hmm. Um, school debt is is up 50%. And the chances of owning homes continues to decline for people who are under the age of 40. And so when you look at this, it's like, what? I mean, we're not, we don't have the same America that our parents and grandparents had. Mm. (laughs) And we don't have the same access and we don't have the same opportunities available. And so we have to re-look at our policies and create a structure that allows and some systems and some policies that allow us to function as a society in health and in wholeness. And right now, I think we're holding on a bit to the old guard um, that's no longer working for us. And we need to make adjustments. Mm. Whatever side of the the political spectrum we're on, it's time to make adjustments, to, to put down our partisan and make adjustments. Yeah. So question in that, um, I don't think you mentioned this, but it's been percolating in my head as far as what about sex education and in the Mm -hmm. schooling system? So, Mm -hmm. you know, I grew up, I grew up in Texas. I, I mean, I learned from home, even though I didn't grow up in a Christian home, you know, don't have sex outside of marriage, and I, that was kind of like the sex that I got from home and school. I didn't learn not, I mean, maybe I've blocked it out, but I didn't learn anything from school about sex or safe sex. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that I can think of when I think of sex ed is the scene from Mean Girls when the coach is like, don't have sex. You will get chlamydia and die. (laughs) So I didn't really learn anything from home. I didn't really learn anything from school. The only thing I learned from church was abstinence only. And I I now know through 
the research from my book through the research done by women like Peggy Orenstein that the mm. highest rates of STDs and unexpected pregnancies happen within evangelical culture and abstinence wow. teaching, which I was, I just thought was super That's interesting shocking. because it's not taught, well, if this happens, this is what you can do to be safe. And so mm. I'm wondering also in, if, if the goal is for a decrease of abortions, and we also want to invite men into the conversation, right. then what is it like to have a healthy sex ed conversation in our schooling systems? What does that look like? Oh my gosh. I love this conversation. And again, I think some of this boils down to federal, state, and local levels of government. Because growing up in North Carolina, you know, we did have sex ed. I remember very clearly seventh grade having to watch these videos and freaking out. And they talked about all the STDs and showed you how to use a condom on a banana. Like, mm -hmm. you know, and they did it again a couple of times through high school. So, and I was actually very grateful for that. I was also blessed to be raised in a, a medical professional household. My mom's a nurse. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she always used the accurate terms for our genitalia. You know, she was mm -hmm. always reading books to us about how our body is growing and processing. And it was very disconnected from emotion. So that part was hard, but it was, but also like I understood the parts and I understood mm -hmm. like how things get made and what happens. And in school, they taught us the same. And so I'm very grateful to have that, but you're so right. So many people do not. And I think that it's important for us to have these conversations in schools. Now, could parents have some differing convictions about what that means and what age appropriate things are. And this is where this gets really difficult <laughs> yeah. because some people do not want to talk about, you know, sexuality before certain ages. Um, some people don't want to have these conversations around LGBTQ that are happening in schools. And some of the stuff I understand and some of it, I'm like, well, I don't know. I lean towards, they have an opt out in every state and every school. You can mm -hmm. opt out of any of these conversations should you not want to. But I think People are getting, to your point, less education at home than they should be mm -hmm. and less education in their faith communities than they should be. And so where else could they get it? So I'm, I'm for um, sex education in schools. And even if we, maybe we change the name because sex education does sound really intense for mm. a second grader, you know, yeah. like that's, that's yeah. intense. Yeah. So maybe it's more about, let's talk about our bodies and yeah. our body's identity and what mm. happens to our bodies. Like maybe there's another way to frame this or yeah. talk about it. But I don't think we should remove it from schools, yeah. but leave an opt-out option for mm -hmm. parents who feel very strongly. We're covering this beautifully at home and actually don't want the school to cover it. Fabulous. Yeah. Like you, you take your kid out to the park that day and yeah. everybody else will get the education. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so good. And so I, I love the I, first, I just, I love hearing you talk about parenting. I'm always asking you questions because I just <laughs> love the way you and Cody parent. Thank um, you. It's just really, really awesome. Thank you. So just kind of, Wrapping up here, um, uh, you, I maybe have two more questions or two more thoughts is you said, you know, part of the Roe v. Wade and the the reason um, that it was voted on the way it was is the idea that the government cannot or should not intervene with private conversations mm -hmm. with doctors. And yep. something that one of my friends asked me recently that I had never thought about before was... Should the government have the power to tell a woman what she can and can't do with her body? Right. And, you know, I, of course, I've heard, you know, my body, my choice and all these different things. Mm -hmm. But I don't, it hit me in a different way of, mm -hmm. I wonder what it would be like, what it, if the government has the power to tell me what I can and can't do with my body, that 
something about that feels a little scary to me. Um, Mm -hmm. So I wanted to hear what you thought about that. Mm -hmm. It does feel scary to me too. And, you know, I also hear the argument in the pro-life community of, well, there's an innocent baby who doesn't have a voice. Okay. So I hear that argument and I, and I can see where you're coming from. And I also just think it's a dangerous precedent. And Mm. I also find a lot of hypocrisy in the evangelical community, because when it comes to things like vaccines, you know, people will be on the front lines. The first group Mm -hmm. to be out there is evangelicals talking about, it's our body. You can't tell us what to do with our children. You can't tell us what to do with their bodies. And it's like, oh, this is just feels like an interesting tension for me. Mm. Um, and I don't know how to resolve it. And I'm not saying one is right, wrong, yeah. or the other. I just think, yes, it is. A, it's a dangerous precedent to mm. set. And yeah. I, you know, when RBG wrote out um, Roe v. Wade, when she was talking about that, she said abortion should be rare and it should be safe. Wow. So none of them none of those seven who made this choice out of the nine justices were saying, we want this to be just a choice women can have anytime they feel like having it. We don't want it. They didn't want it to be used as a birth control. They wanted it to be safe and to be rare, depending on doctors, depending on medical professionals and their conversations with women. And so maybe we could have a better conversation about what would it look like to do more policies, more regulations, more, you know, um, without controlling women's bodies, without getting involved in their conversations mm-hmm. with doctors, could we come up with some policies that add more restrictions that are mm-hmm. helpful? Maybe that's the better conversation to be having. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, but it's, it's a hard one. And I understand those tensions yeah. and I don't yeah. want the government to tell me what to do yeah. with my body, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, but right. I also want to raise a society where abortion is not necessary. So mm-hmm. again, I feel tension. And I feel that there is no pain-free answer here Mm -hmm. and that it's, um, it's nuanced at every turn. Right. And I think that is kind of the important thing just for even just me to look at. I know I can get riled up. You get the brunt of a lot of my hot-headed voice memos where I'm like, I love what them. the heck do I do about this? And you're like, okay. <laughs> Take a deep breath. Um, but the reality, I feel like of so much of what you're, what we're saying and what we're talking about is what you just said. There's not really a pain-free answer. Right. Life isn't black and white. I mean, no. how awesome would it be if it was? Or maybe yeah. it wouldn't be. Maybe it's it would be like the the book The Giver where everyone lives in gray and no True. one can really taste or, you know, True. part of having the capacity. The only way I can really have the capacity to really experience deep love and joy and happiness is to also have the capacity to experience pain and disappointment and rejection and failure. It's when I numb out the experience of not wanting to experience pain that I also numb out the experience of the beautiful areas of my life. You can't numb one without numbing all of it. And so- I just, I think that this is such a nuanced and layered conversation. And really the more and more I I journey with God and journey in my own heart and, and relationship with myself, relationship with God, relationship with others, the more I kind of experience, man, life is really gray. It is. It and, is. And yet God is not afraid of the gray. That's right. And honestly, though, like the gray, confusing, layered, nuanced spaces is really where I have encountered God in, in such tender and special ways in my own life. Yeah, same for me and same for with others. You know, when I enter into their gray space, mm-hmm. <laughs> stuff that doesn't make sense to me about their choices and decisions or the life that they live or, 
you know, the differences that we might have. When I enter into that gray space that feels foreign to me and unfamiliar, I grow in Christ and I grow in my capacity to see a, a fellow person that the love Lord, mm-hmm. that the love the Lord loves mm-hmm. in a way that he sees them. And so I think it it not only stretches us beyond our individual borders and um, helps us grow in the comfort and the advocacy of the Holy Spirit, but it also helps us love and internalize a deep love for people in the same way that Christ does Mm. when we stop trying to make everything so black and white. Mm. Amen. Well, Ashley, thank you for holding this space with me and just having just a an honest conversation. I I mean, rise of the truth teller. Hello. You are like the girl that you can have hard conversations. You lean in and I'm so grateful for you. I'm grateful for your friendship. And I just want to leave it open to you for a minute. If you have any final thoughts on the topic or anything left that you would want to say or share. Oh, you know, I just, I think I just want to say that thank you for having this conversation. And I want to say thank you to your listeners for leaning in as well. And I may have said some things that you don't agree with or things that might feel uncomfortable to you, but I'm thankful for your perspective and your view as well. And um, I'm really glad that we don't have to agree on everything to be connected to one another. (laughs) And I hope that this was a a life-giving conversation and maybe helped you think beyond the way you grew up or the way that you... um, may have experienced this issue or other women. And Kat, I commend you for having it. And I thank you for sharing this space with me as well. Yeah. Love you, girl. Love you. All right. (laughs) Avail exists to empower New Yorkers facing an unexpected pregnancy or past abortion with critical support and resources to inform their decisions build healthy relationships and promote healing. I had the privilege of walking with a friend through an unexpected pregnancy in the last few years and Avail was such a powerful resource for her, for the father of her child. And I just was so impressed every step of the way. Whatever decision you make in the process of pregnancy, how they're so committed just walking alongside you with love, generosity, kindness without an agenda. Some of what they offer is support in unexpected pregnancies, parenting support, after abortion care, and practical tools to support you in building healthy relationships. Avail NYC promises a safe place for competent decisions with no pressure, no politics ever. So if you or someone you know finds yourself in an unexpected pregnancy, you can make an appointment to meet your personal advocate at availnyc.org.